ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. The French Revolution was the crucible of late 18th and early 19th centuries that dazzled and inspired European philosophy. The revolution especially influenced the writings of German philosophers like Kant, Schiller, and Hegel, which under the label of German idealism found an eager audience among Russia's burgeoning radical intelligentsia. What was the relationship between German idealism and the likes of Herzen, Bakunin, and Plekhanov? How did German idealism provide Russian intellectuals a political program and a way to conceptualize the beauty of revolution? I turn to Leslie Chamberlain for some answers. Leslie Chamberlain is a novelist and historian of ideas who writes about Russian history and culture. She's the author of Motherland, A Philosophical History of Russia, and Lenin's Private War, The Voyage of the Philosophy Steamer and the Exile of the Intelligentsia. Her new book is The Ark of Utopia, The Beautiful Story of the Russian Revolution, published by Reaction Books. Here's Leslie Chamberlain. So you have this book, uh, The Ark of Utopia, The Beautiful Story of the Russian Revolution. And this examines, uh, really interesting, examines the influence of German idealism on Russian revolution, on the Russian revolutionary imagination and Russian revolutionary thinking, so I thought we'd start by just having you having you explain this concept that you use, the arc of utopia. What is this? Um, well, it's a, I think it's an attractive phrase, but what lies behind it is um, my belief in uh, in ideas. I mean, I I'm I'm a rare person who is actually an idealist, and I think that ideas are, are out there, and uh, you know they come into focus. Every, every now and again. So I'm talking about these ideas that were current uh, in, the, in the period of German idealism at the end of the 18th century, and I'm drawing an arc to, um, to 1917. I mean, originally I, I, I wanted to, um, to, to link uh, two events. One, one was in, in Germany in, in the 1790s in a, in a seminary where, where Hegel and Schelling were students, and they, obviously they were studying theology, but they were also hugely uh, um, influenced and excited by the French Revolution. And I wanted to draw an arc from that to the storming of the Winter Palace, which indeed I, I do feature in my, in my last chapter. So it's the idea of a, of a, of a continuity of ideas over, really over the top of, uh, of a welter of, of uh, history in, in the 19th century in, in Russia. And, and what I would like to think, what I, would, what I hope my readers would take away from this book, is there was some moral and aesthetic vision in the in German idealism that was still um driving the, the the Russian revolution it wasn't the only driver but it was very much part of the 
of the utopian attitude. So that's what I was trying to get at. So is it is this 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 in this focus of yours on? It's really interesting because when I saw the book and and started reading it, I you know most of us who know the story of the Russian Revolution and Russian revolutionary thought, we of course uh, mostly think of first materialism. Marx, even though, of course, Marx started as an idealist, but, you know, scientific socialism, Lenin. But here you have recovered this very interesting, the romantic notion. So this, as you just said, this is something you wanted to bring out, yes? Yes, because I think, I think we have to remember, I mean, one of the, one of the, the motives for writing this book in, in um, 2017 was that I, I felt that um, the fashion has change the tide of of um of opinion has t- has turned so much against the russian revolution that it's important to remember that it did have a moral and aesthetic content you know even if the aftermath the soviet aftermath was a was a disaster and i can say that because i i lived for a year in soviet russia in, in the 1970s and uh, i know exactly what it was like so i'm not an apologist for for soviet Russia, but I, I think the revolution was was an extraordinary event, and I do think there was some there was there was an intellectual and moral vision in in there, which is why you know many of the philosophers of the early 20th century approved of it, even though they were religious philosophers or idealists of a of a later vintage. It's interesting because the the you, the philosophers you t- you talk about, and you just mentioned Hegel and Schelling, but also in in Kant as well. The Rush, the French Revolution is the pivotal event of the, you know, late um, 18th century into the turn of the 19th century. Talk about the influence of the French Revolution on these German philosophers. Yes, well, as I said in the seminary, you know, they were immensely excited, and and Kant um, was a, was a, a huge enthusiast for the French Revolution, almost against his own philosophy, which was a philosophy that said, you know, we, we need to be rational and not give in to enthusiasm. But he 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 was extraordinary, and in my chapter on Kant, I I do trace very closely his um, enthusiasm for revolution. Um, Kant believed that. Um, that reason could that reason was the driver of revolution, and that we could set up um, progressive rational societies that would fulfill his idea of rational human nature and of course that that does uh, um, link up very much with perhaps the loftiest view of what might have happened in russia in in one thousand nine hundred and seventeen but I think philosophically it 's important to understand that the the German philosophers were working, living and working in principalities that were very conservative, and they were afraid, afraid, you know, the, the, there was a great political fear of what was happening 100, 100 miles away or so. And so the philosophical response in Germany was to deal with change, in, to, to, but to deal with it indirectly, in, in a way to tell the rulers the, that... Um, that change wasn't to be feared because it it could happen in this particular way. I mean, I think that's how um, the whole idea of dialectic comes into 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 being because it's a way of showing of arguing that um, society can change, but not everything will be destroyed on the on on the path to change. You know, the the famous Hegelian uh, term Aufhebung, which which means that um, Yes, 
the opposite of of what is present is going to is going may seem to to happen so that revolution could take place but something of the past is or the best of the past is going to be preserved and there will be a third there will be a third state in which the um the original condition of things and the and the opposite will be reconciled and humanity will go forward on a progressive path so i think that the the fact that german philosophy um in a way, developed all its complexity in order to deal with change, um, gave it then its attraction in Russia. It became a kind of became a kind of formula. I mean, in, in in Germany, it was a kind of it was a philosophical explanation, a way of dealing with change. But I think when it passed into Russia, it became more like um, a, a sort of source book, an idea of you know how does change work? Ah, yes, it goes that way. So it was it, inevitably it was simplified. It was taken as a program program for change um so th- that's actually what's it's really interesting so uh, i mean well the, my first question is 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 uh, with, with based on what you just said is that you know co- the the german philosophers dealing with change they're trying to come up with uh i mean to be crude about it a kind of form progressive formula for how change occurs historical change occurs but at the same time um you you I, I hung on the word enthusiasm in terms of Kant's response to the uh, French Revolution. So how did the German philosophers deal with the more romantic aspects of, of revolution change, but also the notion embedded in the French Revolution of realizing in an experiential way a better life, a utopian life? Well, one way in which... Um German idealism responded was was through Schiller, and Schiller um, was actually famous in his own days as an as a supporter and an enthusiast for the French Revolution, and they they actually gave him a a medal in revolutionary France. By which time he changed his mind. I mean, it took a long time for the news to travel in those days, and um, when when he heard that um, that the king had been executed, he he uh, he removed his uh, support for the revolution. But Schiller. Um, Schiller's argument was that um, human nature can, with with effort on our part, can be balanced so that any excess emotions we might feel, including, let's say, political emotions, can be balanced out by our own sort of self-scrutiny. Um, and what Kant and Schiller had in, ma- in, in common, I think, was a vision of harmony that would, that would be married to progress so that we could move um, as as humanity, as they saw it, they felt they were speaking for the whole of humanity, we could move towards the full expression of human nature within a rational system based on self-scrutiny. So there was a, there was a very strong core of um, moral individualism in German idealism. And, and that, of course, is, is quite problematic in Russia because it didn't have anything to attach itself to in Russia. There isn't that individualistic tradition, as you know. So, um, so also for that reason, it was... Um, it was. It, it helped to create a situation in which German German idealism, which was moral and aesthetic, became a political program in nineteenth century Russia, and not a source of um, individual um, of advice about how to proceed in a in a in a revolutionary environment. It wasn't a source for for individuals to to consider what their moral position would be as revolutionaries. It was a it was a program for revolution. So the individualism in a way dropped away, but um, 
uh, we we might talk at some stage about Turgenev, who I think was always, was very aware of that individualistic tradition, and, uh, and 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 in his own way came back to it. But generally, as as um, Russian revolutionary philosophy um, picked up a sort of head of steam, it was it was based at, it was on the basis of a program for revolution that would happen inevitably through the power of history. So in Russia, I think the power of history overtook um, that element of self-scrutiny that was very strong in, in, the, in the earliest German idealist reaction to, to, to the French Revolution. So you talk about this, that it's really interesting that in Russia, it was, it was German idealism was quickly or taken as a means to create a political program, or even to see that, you know, revolutionary change or some kind of change would happen just by the march of history. Um, put Talk about that, but also put it in the context of, you know, the Russian revolutionaries and people like Herzen and, and others that follow him, they're also reacting not necessarily to, say, the French Revolution, but I think more specifically to the failure of the Decemberist uprising. So how did this all fit together? I think the thing to understand in in Russia is that philosophy, very, or let's say reason, very quickly came to stand in for and to stand for the idea of law, um, the idea of, of, of something infallible, something that was... Um, that was of, of a greater power, let's say, than than the mere power of the Russian state. That reason was on the march. I mean, that was the that was, in a way, the idea from the French Revolution that Hegel drew from the French Revolution, um, and and built into his his historicist philosophy. Reason was on the march. History embodied reason, and it was realizing itself in new social forms. So, of course, that was immensely, that inevitability in historicism was immensely appealing in Russia, because it meant that Russia, even if it was, even if it was backward, even if it was despotic, was nevertheless on a path to, to change. To, and, and, and that change had the force of, of, a, of a historical law. No one could interfere with it. It was happening. Progress was, you know, with a capital P, reason with a capital R. So it was the historicizing of reason that I think really appealed to Russia and, and gave them then the program, uh, and a program and a method for change. Huh, that, that's, that's actually really fascinating. Because, I mean, it's, it, now to, as you're speaking, I'm also thinking about, say, the, uh, you know, particularly by the middle of the 19th century and into the 1860s and 1870s and the rise of uh, revolutionary terrorism, one of the things that is that's always struck me about the move towards terrorism was a certain impatience with history, a certain impatience with time. And it, it kind of, from what you just said, this idea that reason is on the march for some revolutionaries, it's not marching fast enough, right? <laughs> I, th- I think that's I think that's um, that's absolutely right, and I think um, Michal Bakunin is uh, is um, the great um, example of that. He was he was he, he was impatience itself. He he wanted it to happen. He thought he could. I mean, long before Lenin thought that the the train of history could be speeded up, Bakunin thought he could that he could speed it up with with violent acts, of course, to 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 as it were clear the. Uh, Clear the ground so that that new new uh, a new way of life could be established. 
So, um, yes, I talk about, in my book, I talk about Bakunin's uh, meeting with Wagner, um, the composer Richard Wagner, and how, um, in a way, they shared a, they shared a view that art could change the world. Art was part of this machinery. Um, uh, but, but that Wagner could see that Bakunin was, uh, you know, much more of a um, much more of an activist than he was himself, and really quite a quite a dangerous figure. And the irony is that Bakunin's um, you know actual uh, terroristic actions um, took place in in, in Germany, in, in Dresden, rather than in, in 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 Russia. But he he wasn't he wasn't beyond striking a match. He he, he was uh, he was absolutely passionate about about uh, what he believed in. With, talk a bit a bit more about Bakunin because the your your focus on the the influence of German idealism and art and on him is is something that I didn't previously know much about and 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 it's also trying to formulate the question here um talk talk about how did the the this the romantic notions the the issues of passion poetry art influence someone like Bakunin, who we usually associate with this kind of call for violence um, and, and anarchism of sorts? Yeah, well, Bakunin read Hegel and Fichte, and I, I think the best period for me of Bakunin's life was when he was in, in Berlin as a student um, from 1839 to 1842, and that was when he was reading Hegel and, 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 and Fichte, Fichte, the great German romantic philosopher. But, but Bakunin very quickly became caught up in, in the, uh, what we call the German formats, which was the, the time in which, uh, the political time in which, um, Marx himself emerged. And this was very much a reaction against idealism, um, and had a, had a political program attached to it, which was, uh, which was drawn from, um, Feuerbach and the young Marx. Now Bakunin became very, very caught up in that. So you could say that was the root of, of his radicalism. But what he retained from his, uh, his reading of idealism was this vision of of the totality, the to- total change. He he, it was the scale on which I think he imagined change that was, in the first instance, very different from the German idealist view of you know a harmonious way to change. Uh, where I began with Schiller and Kant and so on. This was this was romantic um, extremism. This was you know this was. He would often use the word, as as uh, I think Schelling did, the word of the totality, and it was it was the totality of um, of of the revolutionary vision that he that he was that he was pushing forward. So there was no scope, no room for compromise, um, and uh, he applied this to. I think I think that his his greatest. Uh, goal was to get rid of the Tsar, which was not a philosophical um, aim at all. But he he could he could put behind that cause all this German theorizing and all this encouragement to to um, sort of maximize his own temperament. Now you you write that, and I found this a really interesting passage. You write that when German Romantic philosophy reworked the national idea and passed it to Russia, it served both the progressive Westernizing and the conservative Slavophile causes. One might think of the utopian arc leading from German philosophy to Russia's rebirth as having, from the outset, a fissure in its fabric, straining it and sometimes tearing it into two strands. 
what do you mean by by this? Yes, what do I mean? Um, well, I think that German Romantic philosophy encouraged the Russian uh, its Russian readers to think of the national distinctiveness of Russia. And you could read that in two ways. You could interpret that as um, a rather conservative kind of uh, cause. I mean, we, we see that now. Or you could, and, and you could see it as, um, as pointing to the power of the people. Uh, and the power of the people, you could interpret that in a, in a conservative way. Or you could interpret it as in, a, in a revolutionary way. So I think that... At the heart of this German impact on on uh, on Russian 19th century thinking, you've got the beginnings of both a progressive world view and a very conservative nationalist world view, and they were those two worldviews were coming out of the same sources really, and and I, I think that they've gone on being present in in Russia and, and until until the present day, so it's very important to see that they that they do come out of. Of, of ideas which, um, you know, it could be, it's this idea of, of, of national emergence. But, um, and for instance, the, the Slavophiles like Khomeyakov, when they read Hegel, they rejected the idea of progress. Um, they didn't want this to, to pass through this critical, uh, this critical, uh, era in which, um, the intellectuals would, in a way, turn against the country and, and scrutinize it and question it, and then find some reconciliation with its with its ways in a in a in a more comprehensive and future. Um, they felt that Russia's way was to to hold itself back, to retain the the simplicity of the past, uh, whereas the the Westernizers read that the um, the idea of Russia discovering its its capacities and so on as a, as an engine to to enter the modern world i mean in its own way on its own terms but but definitely to enter the modern world and i mean that was very much i think herzen's position that russia had uh, if you look at his letter to michelet and so on he felt it was felt that russia was rather understood in the west that it had its particular strengths and and some weaknesses but that it was it was on a journey to uh, realizing itself as a kind of equal and, and distinct culture in uh, in the world, and um, the the Slavophile the Slavophile interpretation of German idealism seems to me to have been pulling in a in a different direction, in, in a way holding Russia back, closing it off, retaining the simplicity. But of course, even Herzen had to had to compromise when he when he found that uh, you know that the Russian mir, the peasant mir, was the uh, was the best way to organize the the economy, uh, which was you know not a not not a pro- progressive idea. Yeah, this this is what's actually at the core of this um, you know Western or one of the things at the core of this Westernizer Slavophile relationship with German idealism is the place and mission of the nation itself. So how did, how did the, the, in what ways were, you know, these Russian intellectuals in thinking about the nature of Russia, which, where is it going? Um, how did uh, German idealism's uh, discussions of the nation influence their thinking or influence Russian thinking more generally? 
Well, I think that the, the this is the talk of the nation is very much the the romantic aspect of German idealism. It's not. I mean, Kant was a what we would call an internationalist, and I think Schiller was too. So um, we're talking about Fichte really here, and uh, that's a, that's a line that uh, that that you can draw from Fichte to Bakunin. Um, it's uh, as I say. I think it had a. I think it had a very conservative and obscuring kind of effect. Um, but uh, at the same time, it was it was anti enlightenment. I mean, the German idealism was a, in, in many ways an extension in its Kantian and Schillerian and even Hegelian form. It was an extension of the Enlightenment. Um, the the reaction against the Enlightenment was also informed in Russia by by German philosophy, but by by the more romantic and anti-Enlightenment philosophy. And I think these forces are are always in in uh, in um, in conflict in Russia. I think they're, they're they're always they're always still there. And the the anti-Enlightenment philosophy, of course, gave free reign to Russian religious thought and Russian mysticism, which see, which to many seem to be uh, an essential part of the Russian nation's self-definition. So you come back there to um, perhaps just a different view of what Russia, what Russia is and what Russia can be. And, and of course, we see that, we see that now. I mean, I, I if you were to analyze the, the present day situation, you might think that the, there's both the, the veneer of a sort of, um, rationalist, secular, um, equivalence with a, with a, with a Western, um, with a powerful Western nation on the one hand. And on the, on the other hand, you've got this recourse to, um, mystical and, um, religious definitions of, of, of Russianness. Um, which which make Russia a very difficult place for the West to understand, I think, because it seems to be pulling always in the, in, in, two, in two directions. I mean, both both uh, running alongside, running with the West in terms of its uh, sort of secular and progressive attitudes, but but at the same time having this extraordinary view of itself, which which doesn't really doesn't really fit that. Yeah, that it's secular. the same. To say nothing of the Russians themselves trying to figure out who they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so um, this this arc of utopia probably didn't land in in in, in nineteen seventeen. You know, that I had to break off my story, but uh, I think it. I think there's another another arc began. Perhaps Russian history is a series of these arcs. Yeah, interesting. That's, that's yeah. Maybe someday somebody will look at the the the, the stretch the German idealist you know current all the way up to our present day. Yes, it seems to be a series of cycles, doesn't it? A cycle of, of uh, rationality and a cycle of uh, um, sort of anti-enlightenment, irrationality, mysticism, self-definition through through religion. Um, I think I think for, for me the difficulty is, has always been which of these approaches is going to protect the individual, and we know that individualism is so very difficult in Russia. And um, sometimes I've thought, and when I was reading German philosophy. Uh, Russian philosophy around the time of the revolution. I think it was the religious philosophers who were protecting the person, as it were. But um, but I, I don't know. Now I would think it was uh, in the present present period. I, I would think that it was secular Westernized uh, a secular Westernized outlook that was more likely to project protect human rights. So yeah, extremely difficult. Yes, no, definitely, definitely. It's, it's fascinating, though. Now, now, speaking of this, this, this individualism 
um, you, you said uh, a few minutes ago about how this is something that Turgenev picked up on in terms of uh, where he recognized it within German uh, idealism and, and expressed it. So talk about uh, Turgenev's place in this arc of utopian and how did someone like Dostoevsky fit in it as well as maybe a, a counterpoint to Turgenev? Yes, well, I... I included Turgenev in the story. Um, I think that's probably quite unusual to include him as a kind of uh, as, as a kind of revolutionary manque. But of course, he did he did write the novel Rudin. He he knew about uh, the kind of character who would be willing to fight for his ideals. Uh, Rudin died on the barricades in uh, in, in in Paris uh, in um, in 1848, I think. So um, this is. Uh, Turgenev, I, th- I think that he, I mean, he began. He, he, he studied in Berlin. He wrote a he wrote a, a thesis on uh, on pantheism. I think he read a great deal of Goethe and Schiller, and I think that he was always um, most at home with the world of of literature, and 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 that informed by by the early idealism, as it were, which was individually based and which asked questions about the. Uh, the human personality and whether its its um, conflicting traits could be harmonised, um, and and he was also very concerned, as I think Schiller was, with with the with the tension and sometimes the distance between theory and practice. I mean, something that many of us might think think of in our in our private moments. You know, how do I what 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 ideals do I hold, and and how do I how do I base my life on them? How is there is there some kind of political action that I can like I can adopt, I can carry out to to, to show to realise my ideals? And I I think he found this personally very very difficult. I and mean, we know that his his fiction is full of uh, characters who who don't quite grasp the nettle in life. They are a bit fatalistic and they're a bit sort of underpowered and. Partly they're undermined by a kind of self-analysis such as um, Schiller and perhaps Kant would have encouraged, but partly they're just made that way. So it's very difficult for Turgenev to really um, put everything behind the idea of revolutionary action because he doesn't think people are up to it. <laughs> Much as he he uh, you know is was was sorried by by the state of Russia and would have wanted it to to have improved, but I don't think he believed in in revolutionary action. And as for yeah, go ahead. and, and um, what about Dostoevsky? Yeah, Dostoevsky. Well, Dostoevsky was a great reader of of uh, of German idealism, and I, I I was just looking at you know when he was when he was uh, in in Siberia where he was he was reading he was ordering. Uh, Michael, his brother, to send him Kant's um, critique of pure reason, which is, you know, quite ambitious reading. Uh, for when you're, well, he had nothing else to do. He was, uh, he, <laughs> he was in deepest exile. But um, so Dostoevsky was a great reader of 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 Kant and Schiller, and and I think what he did was to to read back into German idealism the religious fervor that actually the German philosophers had, had just really got rid of. You know, they were part of the Enlightenment. But for Dostoevsky, it was it was a religious and mystical matter what um, what the uh, what the individual um, could realize through his own soul in the world. And so we have the brothers Karamazov who are 
who are all three of them instantiations of of uh, Schiller's idea of the of the the three faculties in the human in human nature and in and Schiller's idea was that in in some of us a kind of uh, this kind of material drive dominates and in some of us a kind of formal rational drive dominates and and in others uh these uh rather angular and sharp tendencies are are absorbed into a more aesthetic personality, which would be um, Alyosha Karamazov. So I think Dostoevsky was was always using the idealist um, schemes of things, but reinserting them in a in a religious uh, vision, which was also a vision for Russia, and which was also an aesthetic vision. So so what we get in Dostoevsky is very much a version a version of the beautiful and moral message that that I think was 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 there in in the early days of German idealism, but it's 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 turned into a Russian mystical message. So we get the idea of beauty will change the world, um, but it's a it's it's become something other than than what the German idealists had in mind. Now another figure that I was uh, uh, surprised to see making appearance in in the effects of German idealism is. Uh, um, Georgi Plekhanov, because of course, you know, he's considered the father of Russian Marxism. Uh, but here you point out a very interesting dynamic about him in terms of how he put uh, a lot of importance onto interplay between revolution and art. So uh, talk about this aspect of Plekhanov's uh, legacy. Yeah, well, Plekhanov was also um, a, a, a great reader and a great reader of the German sources and and, and a lover of literature. I mean, he was um, he read very widely, and in one sense, I mean, he was committed to a Marxist outlook, and he believed, therefore, that um, that art should show um, should reflect a social awareness, in, and and it should uh, take the side of the exploited. Um, uh, downtrodden class, as it were, and he he got as far as 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 formulating something like art serving the the spirit of the party. So that's with capital P. Um, so he was um, he was a good Marxist in that respect, but his own instinctive sense of the the power of art and the complexity of art and um, Seem to, seems to conflict with that. So we have a sense of a, of a more private Plekhanov who is almost valuing art for art's sake. And I think you can, you can, you can find your way along those two different paths in his writing about art, which, um, actually he was, he wrote more and more about art in his last 20 years, perhaps all the more, uh, passionately as he was, he was politically sidelined. So I think it was, I, I think that, um, did any any Russians really who'd read German idealism and admired and loved it always had this love for the power of art? And because Marxism rather downgraded art, made it a function of of, uh, of the political, they they probably weren't happy with that. I, I think I think I detect that in Plekhanov. It's it's an awkward thing. It's like you 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 admire you, maybe you think art is the is the the greatest expression of the human spirit, but you're being asked to 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 um, harness it to the cause of the proletariat, and that that becomes that becomes uh, a problem. Even if you stay silent on that problem for political reasons, it becomes a problem. Right. I, that that's what's really the the 
the role of art, particularly in the late 19th and, and, and early 20th century in Russia, is is a, another fascinating thing that you point to. And it seems that given the one of the elements, strong elements within German idealism is the realization of, you know, society or the individual in a moral, experiential, uh, you know, to live the beautiful life. How did how does art play into into that Russian art play into that at the turn of the century? Well, as we know, it was a a magnificent a magnificent time for for Russian art as this explosion of, uh, of 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 modernist art um, in in the early twentieth century, late nineteenth century. Um, I, I think it's hard to see art as as um, anywhere in the world as great as what was coming out of Russia at that time. And in, in one way, I see it, for me, with my arc of utopia vision, I see it as Russia um, finding its, find, uh, finally finding its on, answer to German idealism. Look, this is what we can do on our own terms. That we, We're not German idealists, we're Russians. But art is, a, is a, of, of huge importance to us in the way it was to you German idealists 100 years ago. Um, first of all, it's... Um, it's a means of communication, and it's a means of mass communication. And in that respect, um, the power of art plays into the Russian sense of of a collective destiny. Um, of you know, we're we're, we're all we, we want it all to be saved together. I think this is a, a quote from the poet Ivanov. Um, so art is this this as it seems, this power, art written with a capital A, is almost a metaphysical power that is somehow going to draw together all of Russia's disparate and conflicting ways and its huge mass of people, and it's going to deliver this um, great <clears throat> uplift in the future. And so, um, and it's going to do it through, I mean, part of its power is, is through beauty, and we know that um, you know Russian modernist art was was extremely beautiful, not in an effete way, but in a in a new modernist way. Um, not least drawing on ideas from mathematics and geometry and so on, which which hark back to the idea that beauty is also a rational force that's <clears throat> realizing itself in this moment uh, towards 1917. So I think that. Um, it was an extraordinary answer to German idealism. I also think that um, it was the art itself, modernist Russian modernist art, was an extraordinary fusion of art and philosophy. And in a way, it told the story of where Russia had been um, developing in the 19th century, what it was trying to do. I mean, you could see that as a version of, of um, Russian identity. So that it, it became a comment on the whole philosophical adventure. And, and finally, um, and and this goes back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation, and that is, you felt that the a lot of the the particularly around the centenary commemorations of the Russian Revolution and kind of thinking about it and readdressing its history and its legacies, that this the the beauty of it, the the more romantic utopian aspects of it have been kind of pushed to the side or sublimated by the aftermath. So considering the role of, of German idealism in this arc of utopia, how is the Russian Revolution a beautiful story? 
Well, I'm, in, in, in one way, my title is, is ironic because um, everybody knows that it, it didn't turn out beautifully. Um, in another way, it's a, it's a bit of a, a grammatical sleight of hand insofar as it's not, so, it's not so much a beautiful story as a story of beauty because uh, German idealism was so much um, German aesthetic idealism. It was a vision of um, of what of human potential based on a on an artistic idea, an idea of the um, the, the the perfect work work of art, which would be a balance of, of form and content of of material and ideal. And uh, you know that that was in a way Kant's idea, and it was certainly Schiller's idea. Um, and that gave a gave a vision for what human nature could make of itself. I mean, Kant's idea was very much of a of a humanity that could stand on its own on its own merits without a without a god, without um, without a state to guide it. You know that this was the moment of humanity in its highest self-making. It could make itself like a work of art, and I, I think that that did carry over into Russia. And in that sense, it was a beautiful story because it incorporated these this beautiful vision of a of a humanity that could realize its the fullness of human nature um, without any further assistance. That it could all be done with human capacity to to, to devise its own vision and to fulfil it. And I think that that was there in that moment in Russia. And uh, I think we should still celebrate it. That was Leslie Chamberlain, a novelist and historian of ideas who writes about Russian history and culture. She's the author of Motherland, A Philosophical History of Russia, and Lenin's Private War, The Voyage of the Philosophy Steamer, and The Exile of the Intelligentsia. Her new book is The Ark of Utopia, The Beautiful Story of the Russian Revolution, published by Reaction Books. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.